Welcome, everybody, to today's Law of Self-Defense show. I am, of course, Attorney Andrew Branca. Uh, for those of you who are new, uh, we do ask that you uh, please hit that subscribe button. If your subscribe button is red right now, we need you to smash it until it turns gray. That's the biggest thing you can do for us in helping us spread our Law of Self-Defense content more broadly across the Internet. We're right at, let me take a look at where we are at the moment. We're about 75 people short of 42,000 subscribers, folks. So maybe we'll hit 42,000 this show. That would be nice. We usually have a few thousand people who watch our content any given show. So that would be greatly appreciated. If you could, uh, so hit that subscribe button. That's most important. Hit the bell to make sure you get notifications. Hit that like, thumbs up button if you're watching this on YouTube. Um, that helps us as well. And if you don't do uh, anything else, please uh, leave a comment. Even if it's just your city and state, that also helps fool the YouTube algorithm into sharing our content more broadly than would otherwise be the case. And the sponsor for today's content is none other than Law of Self-Defense itself. Law of Self-Defense Principles, our best-selling book. Here it is. It's a real book, folks, real physical book. You can go to Amazon, see over a thousand reviews for this book. It's solid five-star rated. They'll charge you $25 plus shipping and handling. We'll give you the book for free. We do ask that you cover the shipping and handling, the cost of getting the book to you, unless you want to stop by our office in Castle Rock, Colorado, in which case I'll hand you a book. But if you want the convenience of having the book shipped to you, we do ask that you cover the cost of doing that. It's not a lot, folks, and you do get the book for free, and you can get this book at lawofselfdefense.com slash free book for free. All right. So we're still kind of doing some uh, shows that are more or less technology testing, technology demonstration projects, folks. Uh, so I'm not sure how long today's show will go. We don't have any guest attorneys today. We had uh, attorney Steve Gosney with us yesterday. Steve's always welcome on the show, but he started his vacation today. So he's out of the loop. So it's me and me alone today, folks. And what I wanted to talk with all of you about was what happens or the consequences of your claim of self-defense being perceived as untruthful, as a lie, as a fabrication, as something that the authorities don't believe. What happens as a result of that? And what happens is pretty bad, folks. So we're going to talk about the consequences of your claim of self-defense being perceived as untruthful. What kinds of statements or circumstances or conduct can lead the authorities to conclude that your claim of self-defense is questionable, untruthful, a lie, a fabrication? What are the consequences of that? And what kind of steps we might take to mitigate the risk of our perception, of our claim of self-defense being perceived as untruthful. All right, so uh, as always, if you'd like to pose questions during the show, please feel free to do that in the chat. If you're a Law of Self-Defense member and you're watching this on the uh, Law of Self-Defense member dashboard, which I shut down because I had that echo problem earlier, uh, but let me open that up again so I can see the chat. Hopefully the echo will not return. Um, if you're a Law of Self-Defense member, you put your questions in the chat on your dashboard, I will prioritize those. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube and you want to put your question in the chat, that's fine, but it needs to be a super chat in order for me to address the question because we have, uh, otherwise there's too much, too much noise in the chat. 
the real Rick Nikita in the chat. Thank you. Thank you. That's much appreciated. $5. Always, always grateful for those super chats. Uh, yes, yeah, so I've got the chat up on uh, the member dashboard. Uh, I'm seeing the chat for YouTube, so the super chats will go through before the end of the show. That said, let's dive right into things. So what are what are the consequences uh, if your claim of self-defense is perceived as unreliable, questionable, a lie, a fabrication? Uh, well, they're pretty bad, folks. Uh, prospectively, hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal expenses and at least a 10% prospect that you're going to get convicted and sentenced to prison for the rest of your life without possibility of early release. That's the downside. That's pretty bad. Even if you don't get convicted and sentenced to life in prison for having killed somebody in what appears to others to be not self-defense, uh, even if you're acquitted at trial, which obviously is a huge win, you're still out all the money, folks. You're still out the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And there's little you can do to prevent being put in that position if the people who have the authority to make the call on whether or not you will incur that expense, the prosecutors primarily, uh, if they decide that your claim of self-defense is questionable, well, then your use of force, which you'll have conceded to, by the way, uh, so you'll have conceded to the physical conduct that's the basis for the criminal charge against you, um, if they decide your legal defense of self-defense is questionable, is vulnerable to attack because it's not true, um, they, at their whim, can decide you're going to trial. There is no real threshold for them to meet, no practical bar to them taking you to trial. They, at their whim, decide whether or not you go to trial. And if you're going to trial, you are going to incur those legal expenses. I mean, what percentage of your resources will you expend in an effort not to spend the rest of your life in a cage with other really unpleasant people. A lot of it, right? Uh, many defendants end up selling their homes, selling their businesses, cashing out their retirement accounts, cashing out their kids' college funds, begging, borrowing money from anybody they can. Because there is a huge difference between a legal defense that is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars versus the legal defense that's in the tens of thousands of dollars. And yes, I know tens of thousands of dollars is a lot of money. It's a pittance for a legal defense in a killing case, folks. Very common in cases I consult on, and this is independent of my expense in the case, uh, very common in a killing case, murder or manslaughter, to spend $200,000 pre-trial before you even get to the trial. So that's how expensive these things can quickly get. And whether or not you're brought, you're compelled to be brought to the point where you're spending that kind of money is not your decision to make. It's a decision made by other people and primarily by the prosecutor. He determines whether or not you go to trial. In theory, there are checks on that authority. In theory, there's a grand jury. In theory, there's a probable cause hearing that happens. Forget all that. If the prosecutor wants you to go to trial, you're going to trial, especially in a self-defense case. So Let's recall, self-defense is a legal defense that's different in, in an important way from most other legal defenses. So, for example, if you were charged with a crime, a shooting, somebody was shot and killed, they say, we think you did it, you might raise an alibi defense. An alibi defense says, I didn't do it. I had nothing to do with that event. I was someplace else. I was having dinner with my mama that night, and she'll testify to that. Self-defense is different than that. Self-defense is not a defense where you're denying involvement. It's quite the opposite of that. When you raise the legal defense of self-defense, you're not saying 
you didn't do it. You're saying you did do it. I shot that guy. My bullet killed him. I'm responsible for that outcome. But I ought to have no legal consequence because I did it in lawful self-defense. I have the legal justification of self-defense. It's a defense that in legal textbooks is often referred to as a defense of confession and avoidance. You're not saying you didn't do it. You're saying I did it. You're confessing not necessarily to a crime. You're confessing to the underlying conduct, to firing that round intentionally. But you're confessing to the conduct and seeking to avoid confession and avoidance, seeking to avoid criminal liability on the basis of justification. And if that works, well, that's why you're not confessing to a crime, because if it was lawful self-defense, then the conduct was not a crime. It was, well, legally justified. Well, what this means for a prosecutor is, uh, you know, in theory, a prosecutor has to prove you guilty of each and every element of the crime itself, whatever the criminal charge may be, and overcome your defenses. But when you're raising the legal defense of self-defense, you've effectively given the prosecution the first half of that problem because he doesn't have to prove you guilty of firing the shot. You're saying, I fired the shot. I mean, you can't coherently argue uh, it wasn't me. I was having dinner at my mama's house. I had nothing to do with this. But also, I did it in self-defense. Those are logically inconsistent legal defenses. Now, as a strictly technical matter, there are many courts that will allow a defendant to make logically inconsistent defenses. Not all of them. Some judges won't stand for it. Uh, but they're, strictly speaking, there's no technical legal reason you can't try legally inconsistent defenses and see if the jury buys any of them. So in this case, it would be, well, you know, I wasn't there. I had nothing to do with this. But if you don't buy that one, I did it in self-defense. What do you think the prospects are of a jury buying that alternative, logically inconsistent defense strategy in the case where you've killed somebody? Not great, folks. It just doesn't work. So jurors know you've killed someone. Obviously, you're being charged with murder or manslaughter. And maybe that killing was lawful. Maybe you ought no, have no legal liability for it. But they want to know why that had to happen. And if you're offering them logically inconsistent defenses, um, you don't look like you have a good reason for having shot and killed that person. You look like you're just trying to escape legal liability, which, by the way, is the case in almost every claim of self-defense. So the vast majority of claims of self-defense are nonsense. They are lies and fabrications. They are legal defenses being raised by criminal defense attorneys on behalf of guilty clients, because that's what you do as a defense attorney. You have a client. You don't really care if they're innocent or guilty. That's not your mission. Your mission is to compel the state to prove them guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And as part of that process, you raise whatever legal defenses might be supported by the evidence. And self-defense is often one of those. The trouble is, in most, most claims of self-defense, they're not well supported by the evidence. The overwhelming evidence is contrary to self-defense to the point where it's not difficult for the prosecution to disprove one or more elements of self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. And if you're not familiar with the elements of self-defense, there are five, up to five elements of any claim of self-defense. Those elements are innocence, Imminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. Let's see, what did I do with my 
my little, well, look at that. I lost my, I lost my little pop-up screen. That's okay. Here is a little cheat sheet that we make available to all of you who'd like it. As you can see, it lists the five elements. The self-defense provides a brief explanation of each. We make this available to you for zero cost, folks. Uh, it's a PDF download, so there's not even any shipping and handling. If you don't understand these five elements of self-defense, you can't possibly understand how self-defense applies to any use of force scenario particularly one you might be involved in. And these apply in all 50 states, in D.C., in Guam, in Puerto Rico, anywhere that U.S. law applies. It's the same fundamental principles, legal principles, based on these five elements of self-defense. And you can get this, folks, at lawofselfdefense.com slash elements. If you do nothing else today from watching this show, please at least do the free download of the PDF, folks. I mean, I can't make it less expensive than free and internet and PDF download. And again, that's at lawofselfdefense.com slash elements. <clears throat> so um, the trouble with most claims of self-defense is they're, is they're nonsense. They're actually being raised by bad actors who acted unlawfully. And they're, they're lawyers just raising this legal defense of self-defense because that's what you do as a criminal defense attorney. You raise whatever defenses might be supported by the elements. You try to get that jury instruction. You try to convince the jury that the defense has not been disproven beyond a reasonable doubt. But it's important when we consider that legal defense that it does have these multiple elements. And unless they're legally waived for some reason, every required element is obviously required. And the state is not obliged to disprove your claim of self-defense in its entirety. It's merely obliged to disprove any one of these required elements beyond a reasonable doubt. The other elements might be 150% in your favor, but if the prosecution can disprove any single one of the required elements of self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt, you have no legal defense of self-defense. It collapses like a house of cards. And remember, self-defense is a defense of confession and avoidance. You've already confessed in the underlying conduct. So if they can disprove any one element of self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt and your legal justification collapses entirely, all that's left is the confession. And that's a walkaway conviction for the prosecutor. And you think he knows that going in? Yeah, he knows that. So when he gets that investigative report from the, from the detectives about your use of force, what's he looking for in that report? He's, if he's smart, he's looking, if he's well-informed, doesn't always apply to all prosecutors, all lawyers generally, but if he's smart and well-informed, he's looking for any one of those elements that appears to him to be vulnerable to disproof beyond a reasonable doubt. If he sees that, well, then you're going to trial because it's an easy conviction for the prosecutor. And prosecutors like to win. Folks, they're not in it to lose. They're in it to win. Uh, there's a reason they have conviction rates of trial in excess of 95% typically. It's because they get to pick the cases they bring to trial and they, they like to bring the easy wins to trial. And if they're presented with a quote-unquote self-defense killing and they see that there's an element of that claim of self-defense that's vulnerable to disprove beyond a reasonable doubt so they can collapse the legal defense, well, they know they've got an easy conviction because you've already confessed to the underlying conduct. That's a pretty attractive case for them to bring to trial. And one of the things that might lead them to that conclusion, that they have an easy win in your use of force case, is if they believe you're lying. Because most claims of self-defense involve defendants who are, in fact, lying about 
having used force in self-defense. Most people who are engaged in the criminal justice system are in fact criminals. That's just the reality of the system. Now, not everyone, of course, and that's why we oblige the state to have to disprove, uh, sorry, to have to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt for every defendant. It uh, doesn't matter how many prior convictions they may have. But the fact is, as a practical matter, most of the claims of self-defense that are seen by police, by detectives, by prosecutors, by judges, most of them are BS, false, fabricated claims of self-defense. That's almost all they see in the context of claims of self-defense, false, fabricated claims of self-defense. And they're typically easily defeated because there's usually one or more elements that are readily disproven beyond a reasonable doubt. It's an easy conviction for the prosecution. That's the norm. So when you're claiming self-defense, you've had to defend yourself. You used force. Maybe you shot and killed someone and now you're trying to justify the self-defense. The default position of those professionals in the criminal justice system, the police, the detectives, the prosecutor, the judge, is that like all the others, your claim of self-defense is a fabrication, is false. And it's really important that you be able to distinguish your claim of self-defense from the norm that they typically see. Now, what might distinguish your claim of self-defense from the norm of fabricated claims of self-defense? Or alternatively, what kind of conduct, what kind of statements, might, what kind of things might you do that make you look consistent with all those other fabricated claims of self-defense, which would be bad because then you're on the fast track to a trial just like all the others. And that's not what you want. You want to be treated differently than the typical entrant into the criminal justice system, differently than the default perception of a claim of self-defense is something that's fabricated to attempt to escape criminal liability that ought to apply. You need to look different. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of well-intended defenders, uh, many of the cases I consult on, um, end up going to trial because of things that the defender did or said that appear to be inconsistent with a legitimate claim of self-defense or are consistent with a fabrication. Uh, some of this fabrication conduct or statements might be what we would call consciousness of guilt type evidence. We've all heard the expression, right? Uh, if you shoot someone outside your house, make sure you drag them inside the house before you call the police. Well, folks, that's what we would call technically uh, tampering with the scene, tampering with evidence. And tampering with evidence is classic consciousness of guilt evidence, meaning it's evidence that suggests that not only should the prosecutor believe that you're guilty of whatever the crime is, but you apparently believe you're guilty or you wouldn't be tampering with the evidence. The same as if you were uh, tampering with witnesses, suggesting to them to say things in a certain way, which you could be overheard doing at the scene, especially if someone's got their cell phone live, right? Maybe they called 911 too, and they haven't hung up. And that microphone is capturing everything you're saying, like things you're saying to the people with you. Hey, make sure you tell the police this or that. Does that sound like witness tampering? I mean, maybe it's not. Maybe your, your intention is that you just want the witnesses to tell the truth, but you want to make sure they, they tell all the truth, including the parts that are favorable to you. But it sure can sound like witness tampering. If you move around evidence at the scene, drag the body into the house, move the knife a little bit closer to the body. Why? 
it looks like you're trying to recreate the scene in a false way that's more favorable to you. Why? Because you thought the way it was before was not sufficiently favorable, was not sufficiently consistent with self-defense. You thought the way the evidence actually existed was bad for you. And so you're tampering with it to make it look better for you. And that's classic consciousness of guilt evidence. So you don't want to be doing any of that. That, that also includes, by the way, lying to the police. Uh, now we'll talk in a moment about what you might want to say or not say to the police in the aftermath of a use of force event. Uh, and it, you may want to say absolutely nothing. That's one way to go. Um, but if you do decide to say anything, you don't want to be lying to the police. And you don't want to be saying things that could be interpreted as lying to the police, which is easier to have happen than you might think. Uh, we know, or we all should know, uh, that the way that your brain captures and stores and recalls information under stress, especially life-threatening stress, is completely different than our normal experience. We will not remember the details of our deadly force self-defense encounter with any degree of ac accuracy or any particular degree to be able to repeat it consistently after the fact. We will have forgotten things that happened, often sometimes important things. We will have remembered things that didn't happen in reality, but our brain kind of filled it in to the space. Um, we will uh, forget about things like counting how many shots you fired or anything numerical goes right out the window. And this is not because you're a bad person or because you're trying to lie. It's because it's a natural brain response to the stress. But can it be presented as an attempt to dissemble, to lie about what happened? He lied about how many shots he fired because he didn't want us to know how many it actually was? Would that be consciousness of guilt evidence? Lying, apparently lying to the police, to detectives? Yes, folks. There's a big difference between saying nothing, which cannot be held against you in, under most circumstances, and saying things that are demonstrably untrue. Even if you think they're true, you genuinely believe you fired four shots, but the surveillance, the ring camera from the house across the street shows you firing eight shots. Does that mean you were not acting in lawful self-defense? No, it just means your brain didn't count correctly. But can it be presented as an effort to lie? Yes, of course it can. And might a prosecutor do that? Keep in mind, folks, that all of this can go sideways for you without requiring any malice on the part of any of the people making decisions here. So, we don't need to imagine. We've all seen cases where there was malice, I would suggest. The George Zimmerman trial, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. There was malice on the part of the prosecution, for sure. Uh, maybe others as well. But it's not required that there be malice for things to go badly for you on the legal side of the fight. Because the truth is, and you all know this, none of the people who are evaluating your use of force after the fact, none of them know what actually happened because they weren't there. You were not attacked while you were standing next to a uniformed police officer. The uniformed cops involved showed up after the fact. The detectives showed up after the fact. The prosecutor got the investigative report after the fact. The judge got assigned the case long after the fact. And the jury, by definition, is not supposed to know anything about what happened anyway. They're really supposed to be a blank sheet of paper when they come to your trial. 
So nobody was there. So nobody knows what actually happened. All people can do is look at the evidence that's available. And evidence can be true or false, folks. All they can do is look at the evidence available and attempt to make reasonable inferences from that evidence. And just like the evidence could be true or false, those inferences, the reasonable inferences they're making, could be correct or incorrect. There's nothing about the criminal justice system that guarantees truth. It involves human beings, and human beings make mistakes. or not even mistakes. They make judgment calls. And you don't want them to be making judgment calls that are inconsistent with your best interest. You want to try to present to this criminal justice process building blocks of evidence from which they are making favorable inferences for you, inferences consistent with a narrative of innocence, a narrative of self-defense. What the prosecution is looking for is building blocks of evidence that are consistent with a narrative of guilt. Building blocks of evidence that are inconsistent with those elements of self-defense. Innocence, imminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. Again, you can get this cheat sheet at lawofselfdefense.com slash elements for free, folks. And things that make those elements look vulnerable, things that look inconsistent with a narrative of innocence is, for example, consciousness of guilt type evidence. Uh, So we need to be very careful about statements or conduct that might be perceived as consciousness of guilt. One of the first things that'll happen, by the way, folks, when, when this, your use of force gets handed over to the criminal justice system is there'll be some initial exchange between the detectives and the prosecution. And the prosecution will ask the uh, detectives, so, uh, you know, this guy's going to claim self-defense. What do you think? And the prosecution is, uh, sorry, the detectives are going to share their gut feel on what they think happened. And that is likely to guide the prosecution in their decision-making in the case. Now, presumably all these people are experienced and not on the job the first day. So the, the detective's gut feel is likely to be pretty good. And that's why the prosecution is likely to rely on it in making charges, uh, charging decisions moving forward. Um, but at any of those points, the responding officers, the detectives, the prosecution, any of those points, they're looking for reasons to advance your case further down the criminal justice pipeline. And you need not to provide them with those reasons. Now, they also know, they know that if they can disprove any one of those elements of self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt, they have an easy conviction. They also know that if they are unlikely to do that, if they don't see a vulnerability in at least one of those elements, they have a tough fight ahead of them because the legal standard is that they have the burden to disprove self-defense, not just by a probability, not by 51%, but beyond any reasonable doubt. So if you make the right decisions, make the right statements, and by that I mean perhaps make no statements, but at least don't make harmful statements, you can make yourself hard to convict, just like we have on the screen here, hardtoconvict.com. By the way, if you go to that URL, folks, that is a 100% free two-hour webinar that we do as a public service for all of you out there in the law of self-defense community and people we're hoping to attract to the law of self-defense community to explain to you how to make yourself hard to convict, to bust a bunch of self-defense law myths that exist out there in the self-defense community it's 100% free, folks, this webinar, uh, but there are limited seats for each one. We do it a few times a week. Um, 
limited seats. So you do have to sign up. We don't charge any money, but you do have to sign up. So you, we don't have too many people uh, in at any one time. You can find out more about that at hardtoconvict.com. So you can make yourself hard to convict if you make the right decisions, optimal decisions, not impossible to convict. That's not a thing. There's no way to make reduce your risk of conviction to 0% other than not being in the fight in the first place, which of course is what we urge you to do. Because once you're engaged in the fight, folks, you've just incurred two risks you were not incurring a moment before, a risk of dying in that fight. You don't know how that fight's going to escalate to what level of force. And there's no magic pixie dust that says you win the fight. I don't care how good you are with a gun or a knife or your hands and BJJ, whatever. It might just not be your day. You might slip on a puddle of grease. That guy might have better luck that day. He may have friends coming around the corner. Who knows? But dying in the fight is one possibility. Another possibility that can't, another risk that can't be reduced to zero is getting convicted. There is no way to reduce your risk of conviction to zero once you're in the fight. Now, you can learn the elements of self-defense. You can get the free book. You can go to our free hardtoconvict.com webinar. You can become a truly informed consumer of self-defense law. You can decide ahead of time today to adopt self-defense strategies that are inherently consistent with lawful self-defense. You can make yourself damn hard to convict. And that's our mission, is to reduce the risk of conviction to as close to zero as possible. And we can get damn close. But it's never zero, folks. That's that's just a noise in a system that's run by fallible human beings. There's always a greater than zero risk of getting convicted, especially if we have to put you in front of a jury. So you don't want to get involved in fights you don't need to be get involved in. Now, where you draw the line, that's a personal decision. I don't tell people what to fight for and what not to fight for. You have to decide that. What we try to do is make you an informed decider. So at least when you're making those decisions, you're making informed decisions. You understand the risks that you're incurring. And you know, I, I say the risk of death is never zero and the risk of conviction and perhaps a life sentence is never zero. It's always more than zero. There are things that are worth those risks, right? Dying, being maimed, being raped, having any of that happen to your wife or your children. Those are things worth dying for, worth going to jail for the rest of your life for, in my opinion. After that, for me personally, it becomes a pretty short list of things I'm, I'm willing to die and spend the rest of my life in a cage over. Now, for other people, maybe, maybe that list is longer. Maybe they draw the line further out. Their boundary for when it's acceptable to them personally to assume those risks is bigger than for me. That's fine. It's a free country. Um, just you know, draw that line in an informed way. So you're not shocked afterwards when, you're, when you've been maimed in the fight or you're facing the prospect of going to prison for the rest of your life or, or for 20 years or 10 years or five years when you're being offered a three-year felony plea and your lawyer is beating you over the head to try to get you to take it because it's the smart move. Don't be surprised. Prepare yourself ahead of time for that possibility and make sure that if you get into a fight, well, those risks were worth what you were fighting for. So you've made that decision ahead of time. All right. So what do we want to do? Well, we, we certainly don't want to engage in conduct to what do we want to do to prevent ourselves from looking like we're fabricating a claim of self-defense? Well, how do these fabrications typically happen? 
bad guy claims a self-defense. Well, often the bad guy, the typical self-defense case seen in a trial, for example, involves someone who was the initial aggressor or at least a mutual combatant in the fight. They went to the fight or they accepted an invitation to fight. And if you do that, folks, if you're the initial unlawful aggressor or a mutual combatant, you've lost the element of innocence. And innocence is always a required element of self-defense. There are other elements that can be legally waived under certain circumstances, but innocence is never waived. So if you were the aggressor, the unlawful aggressor, or the mutual combatant, a mutual combatant, you've lost an element of innocence. And if you've lost innocence, you've lost self-defense. And often, bad guys, that's what they did. So when they claim self-defense, the prosecutor is looking at the investigative report. He's looking at their surveillance camera video. And what does he see? He sees the defendant advancing to the fight. Now, strictly speaking, are there tactical situations where advancing to the fight is the right move? Yes, but it's going to be an uphill argument, folks, because most of us don't get closer to something we think is going to kill us. We tend to get further away. So if you did advance to the fight and you're still trying to claim it's lawful self-defense, well, you better have a damn good narrative and it better be a narrative supported by actual evidence. Because if you can't do that, it's going to look like you were the unlawful in initial aggressor or a mutual combatant that you've lost the element of innocence and you don't have self-defense. So again, I don't tell people what to do. I don't tell you not to advance to the fight. We just had that mall shooting in Indiana, right? Where the uh, we had an active shooter with a rifle, was engaged by uh, the young man with the handgun, um, Elisha, I believe his name was, Dickens. My understanding is when he began firing on the active shooter, he was actually closing distance with the active shooter. Uh, does that mean he's lost self-defense? No, no, that was perfectly tactically and legally sound thing to do under the circumstances, but he had a damn good reason for doing it. He was far away, for the handgun, um, and he, he needed to make effective hits to stop an active shooter in one of the, I mean, a brave way, uh, but a good way of increasing the prospect of getting hits is getting closer to your target, especially if you're 40 yards away with a handgun. That, that's a hell of a shot, folks, under stress. Uh, so he had an evidence-based narrative for why uh, closing on that active shooter was reasonable. But in most typical fights that people get into, if you're closing on the fight, it looks like, well, you're you're seeking to either be the aggressor or you're engaged in a, a you know, mutual combat fight. You're accepting an invitation to fight or you've extended the invitation to fight and the other person's accepting. Either way, it's it's mutual combat. And if it's mutual combat, you've lost the element of innocence. You've lost self-defense. Now, often how lawful defenders get in trouble is uh, the event happened. They use their force. The cops show up and the cops ask them, naturally, hey, what happened? And they'll start saying things. And they may say things that are truthful but provide an incomplete picture of what happened. Now, one way you become a mutual combatant, for example, is if someone says, hey, let's go outside and have a fight. And then you go outside, accept your invitation, and you have a fight with them. That's mutual combat. You're, you're mutually agreeing to physical force to settle your differences. But what if, in your case, you were offered an invitation to fight, and you were like, holy cow, this guy's crazy. I'm just getting out of here. And you never intended to accept that invitation to fight. But in describing what happened to the police, the police go, hey, what happened? And you say, well, that guy offered to fight me. 
And that's all that officer hears from you. Maybe you say more words, he doesn't hear you. Maybe you say more words, you provide more context, but he becomes suddenly deaf. Maybe you provide that additional context and it doesn't get written down in his notepad. Maybe you provide that additional context and the prosecution just decides, well, that's a self-serving fabrication. Statements you make that are helpful to you, you cannot get admitted into evidence. Statements you make that from which a negative inference can be drawn, that can be admitted into evidence. So when you're talking, all the things you say that could be twisted against you, the jury's going to hear those. All the things you say that provide context to those earlier statements that negate their harmful effect on your narrative, they're not admissible, folks. So all the jury hears is the out-of-context negative statements. And trust me when I say you have no idea what words can come out of your mouth from which a negative inference can be drawn. You don't know that you're hurting yourself when you're speaking. You think you're just explaining to a sympathetic police officer how you were the lawful defender against this horrible criminal attack, either on yourself or on other people. And the police are not paid to be your friends, folks. They're paid to determine whether or not there's probable cause for an arrest. And then the detectives come in and they're looking for probable cause for an investigative report for the prosecution recommendation, whether charges should be brought. And in an ideal world, they're, they're going to follow the evidence where they think it takes them. Even if we assume no malice, right? And again, there are cases where there's obvious malice, but even assuming no malice, and we've all played the game telephone, right? Where you say something to somebody and then they, they whisper to somebody else, they whisper to somebody else around a big circle. And when it comes back to you, that state, that phrase is completely different from what you initially said. Well, that happens in investigations too, folks. You say something to a, a uniformed responding officer and he shares it with the detectives. The detectives talks to another detective. That second detective writes it up in a report, maybe that night, maybe the next day. That report goes to the prosecution the prosecution talks to his colleagues, talks to the head of his office. Should we bring charges or not in a, in a big meeting where they're scheduling things? And by that point, the statement's completely different than what you said, completely out of context from when you were saying it. And that's even assuming that you yourself, your own statement accurately reflected what happened because they might not have because of all the stress of the situation. So that's one of the reasons that experienced attorneys like Attorney Steve Gosney yesterday was urging that you, you don't speak with the police, especially where deadly force has been used or threatened to be used, because you have no idea if what you're saying is harmful to you. And even if it's not harmful to you in the moment, you have no idea how it might be misinterpreted, uh, pulled out of context, uh, twisted in a way, even absent malice, incidentally twisted in a way that's devastatingly harmful to you. Because remember, all it has to do is suggest to a prosecution that he may be able to disprove one of those elements beyond a reasonable doubt. Because if he thinks the evidence in that investigative report, which includes your out-of-context statements, puts him in a position to do that, to disprove any one of those elements of self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt, and he knows he's got an easy conviction. And easy convictions are pretty attractive to prosecutors. They like those easy wins. That's how they maintain a conviction rate of trial of 95%. What they don't like are the hard cases. So one of the reasons when I consult on a case that we virtually always get the charges dismissed is because we 
are able to convincingly show the prosecution that this is going to be a hard case. That they're going to have to work really hard to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt to achieve a conviction in this case. And they don't like hard cases. Because hard cases, you spend a lot of time, a lot of effort, you lose, you got nothing to show for it, and they have a giant stack of easy wins on their desk waiting for them. You want those other cases to be the priority for the prosecutor. You want to be the lowest priority case on his desk. And the best way to do that is to look like you're, again, hard to convict. All right. I'm not sure... I mean, there's a thousand ways we could cover this topic, but we're already 45 minutes into the hour. So let me take a look at the uh, the member dashboard, see if questions have come in there. And then I will head over to the Super Chat. So if you want questions answered, folks, you either need to be a Law Self-Defense member, put them in the member chat, and um, those get priority. And then I'll look at the Super Chats over on YouTube and uh, answer those as well. Uh, but they do need to be in Super Chat form uh let's see uh well oscar's here charles is here d is here uh, those are members of the uh, law self-defense community who are very reliable attendees of these uh shows uh says uh, nice digs andrew yeah so we just moved into new offices hence uh, the reason the, the wall behind me is, is pretty bare but uh it'll look different over the next few days we're, we're getting some paint done we're good i think we're going to get the company logo put up behind me should look pretty nice by the time we're done. Uh, we are working on our internet, although the, the streaming seems to catch up after the first few minutes of the show, so we'll, we'll have to see what we can do about that. Uh, we do still have some pixelation early on, but that's what happens when you move into a new place, folks. Uh, let's see. Oscar writes, sipping decaf from my Law of Self-Defense mug. Well, I'm, I'm sipping too. Mine's not decaf. By the way, we get requests every once in a while for these mugs, Law Self-Defense mugs. They're actually nice mugs, folks, um, and they are made in the USA. Uh, the first time we ever ordered mugs, we got them from China, and I just didn't like them. So we, we sent those back. These are America-made, hard to kill, hard to convict, lawselfdefense.com on the back, Law Self-Defense logo on the front. Really nice mugs. You can get them at lawselfdefense.com slash mug. I will caution they're not inexpensive. Unfortunately, as happy as I am to say they're made in America, that means they're, they're two or three times the cost uh, of getting mugs made in China. That's, uh, that's just the way it is. But they are beautiful mugs, well worth having. Make great gifts, by the way. Uh, let's see. Ian writes uh, on the member dashboard, one idea regar regarding verbiage instead of uh, tricking YouTube, something like encourages YouTube to share our content to a wider audience. Oh, I see. Okay. I'll give that um, nothing wrong with that approach. Maybe I'll try that as well. Um, so what Oscar asked, what can we say to the police at the scene, uh, detectives later without a lawyer? So we spend about a full hour on this topic of interacting with the police in the aftermath of a use of force event as part of our, our law of self-defense advanced course, which is a full day, eight hour course of instruction. Uh, we teach it live a couple times a year, uh, or you can buy the DVD if you go to... Uh, where would you go? What's the URL for that? Let me see. Oh, it doesn't help if I misspell things. Um, yeah, if you go to lawselfdefense.com slash advanced, 
You can sign up for our Law Self-Defense Advanced class. It's our full-day class, either online streamed or in DVD format or both. And that includes a, just about a full hour. I think it's 15 minutes uh, talking about interacting with the police in the aftermath of a use of force event. And I, I don't have a full hour left to cover it in that level of detail. Uh, there's really three schools of thought here. Um, one of them is uh, literally say nothing. And the concern there, of course, is if you if you say anything, you might be incriminating yourself. And if you say nothing, you can't be incriminating yourself. Um, that's not actually quite true. There are cases, um, for example, before you've been Mirandized or before you've asserted your rights, if you're silent before that point, your silence can be used against you, especially if a reasonable person under the circumstances would have said it was self-defense. Um, now, one way around that is to assert your rights instantly upon arrival of the police. And then once you've done that, your silence can't be used against you. Uh, but many people don't think of doing that. So um, I caution that simply not saying anything, if you literally say nothing, well, first of all, how do you call 911 and say nothing, right? Ring, ring, 911, what's your emergency? I, I mean, if you're not going to say anything, what was the point of calling? And if you don't call, frankly, that begins to look like consciousness of guilt evidence. Um, so I think taken literally the just say nothing approach may not be practical. So that's one approach of the three. The, on the other end of the extreme, we have the blatherers. They want to explain to arriving officers in detail everything that happened. That's a disaster, folks. You absolutely do not want to be doing that uh, for a lot of reasons we already explained. You yourself don't actually know what happened in any absolute sense. Your recollection of what happened is wrong. Um, so you don't want to be making any detailed uh, statements um, at the scene about what happened without your lawyer present. Um, so those are the two extremes. Literally say nothing, say everything. Bad. Both of those, I think, are, are generally bad. Um, you may want to take what we, what I refer to as the say little approach. So don't say nothing, don't say everything, but say little. Things that you've decided ahead of time are the things you're prepared to say. And they that little may be as little as immediately saying, officers, I assert my right to silence, I assert my right to counsel. That's it. Now, at least you've locked in that your silence can't be used against you uh, moving forward. So you don't have that to worry about. Um, because one vulnerability people often run into is if they literally don't say anything before they're Mirandized, before they've asserted their rights, when their silence can be used against them, and they haven't said the word self-defense, well, then the, the police are subject to being allowed to testify in court that uh, you know, the, the prosecutor will ask them, hey, when you arrived on the scene, does this defendant say anything about self-defense? Nope. Didn't say a word about self-defense. Does that suggest that you later fabricated your claim of self-defense? Yeah. I mean, the, the prosecution will argue to the jury they should make that inference. Now, if you've immediately asserted your right to silence, right to counsel, they can't use your failure to say anything against you because you've asserted your right. So that, that's one way to go. Other things you may want to consider is if there's exculpatory evidence or exculpatory witnesses, um, generally speaking, good guy cases of self-defense don't get in trouble because there's too much evidence in the case. They tend to get in trouble when there's too little evidence in the case, when evidence has disappeared. Uh, and then your claim of self-defense again looks speculative or fabricated or imaginary. Uh, so you shot someone because they had a knife. They were coming at you with a knife and then you shot them. They fell over. You don't want that knife to disappear, folks. That knife is why you shot that guy. So you want to make sure it's taken into evidence. 
witnesses, especially witnesses that may be favorable to you. Uh, you know, you don't want them to disappear uh, if they saw what happened. If you happen to be aware that there's cameras around in a good guy case of self-defense, if you knew what you were doing and did it right, you want the video evidence of that. So you may want to point out, and now you're saying things, right? So you're not saying nothing. You're saying, hey, officers, those people may have seen what happened. That guy's knife uh, went into those bushes. Uh, I happen to see a security camera there that may have footage. You may want to point that kind of stuff out. Now, what are you not doing there? You're not giving some detailed explanation about what happened but you're preserving exculpatory evidence and witnesses. The danger, of course, is once you start talking a little bit, you may end up talking a lot. And police and investigators are, well, they're professional interrogators, right? They're trained in how to interrogate people. I mean, I'm not saying that as a negative about them. It's not a criticism. It's what we pay them to do, especially detectives. So they're good at getting you to make statements, to drawing statements out of you. You don't want to be making statements that are, being induced by other people. There may be things you choose to say. And frankly, you should have chosen what you're prepared to say long before the event. If I'm ever, heaven forbid, involved in an event, I'm willing to uh, assert my rights I'm unequivocally. I assert my right to silence. I assert my right to counsel. I'm prepared to point out exculpatory witnesses and then I shut my mouth. That might be your plan. Frankly, it's not a bad plan. If you can stick to shutting your damn mouth and doing nothing more than that, because if you can't stick to that, if your mouth is going to keep moving, you, you've become a real danger to yourself. And we all respond differently to stress, folks. So I can't tell you. That's why there's no one answer to how do you interact with the police. I don't know how you respond to stress. Um, I mean, some of us have been in stressful jobs. And so we know from experience, it doesn't mean we're better human beings. It just means we've had the experience of having to respond under stress. I've worked on an ambulance crew. I saw a lot of horrible things doing that. Uh, had to do things under, under a certain degree of stress. Lives were hanging in the balance sometimes. So I know how I respond, at least in those situations. I've been there. I've done that. On the other hand, I, I've also gone skydiving. And I was, I mean, I managed to do it. I threw myself out of the airplane six damn times. But I didn't like it. And I wouldn't say I was making great decisions under that degree of stress. But again, I've, I've had that experience, right? So I have a sense for where my boundaries are. Maybe you have too, various parts of your life. Um, if you haven't, then you may not know how you're likely to respond to stress. And there's, there's few forms of stress greater than having had just defended yourself against a life-threatening attack and had to take human life. So you need to be... You need to be cautious, and part of the caution, where you draw the line depends on your personality, and I, I don't know that about you. Only, only you know that about you, if anybody does. Even you may not know. So prepare your strategy for interacting with the police accordingly. All right, let me take a, a quick look back. Uh, Donnie, also... Very, uh, very loyal law of self-defense community member. Does, uh, provides a lot of very uh, valuable feedback in our, our blog posts and our, our chats. Uh, he writes, uh, my thought on talking to the police is tell them what the aggressor did. Uh, I don't need to try to justify your use of force. The police will know why you did what you did if they know what the aggressor did. I would have to disagree. Um, because you may not know what the aggressor did in an absolute sense. 
there may be evidence inconsistent with what you say about what the aggressor did. And keep in mind, you can be mistaken about what the aggressor did and still have it be lawful self-defense. Lawful self-defense does not require that you are facing an actual threat, for example. It only requires that you are reasonably perceiving a threat. Your perception can be mistaken. We're not required to make perfect decisions in self-defense. We're only required to make reasonable decisions in self-defense. And that reasonableness is from your perspective. And it's, it's more a matter of how you saw things than what the aggressor actually did. So you need to be very, very capable about that. Um, Oscar asks, uh, explain about excited utterance or please define excited utterance. So uh, there's a general legal principle referred to as hearsay. Uh, that says that uh, statements made out of court cannot be introduced in court for the purpose of demonstrating the truth of the statement. And, and the classic uh, classic example of hearsay might be uh, you bring Mary in on the witness stand and you ask her to testify about what Susan said to her outside of court. Well, Susan told me that Joe did it. Susan's statement is an out-of-court statement that Mary is repeating in court for the truth of what Susan said. The reason that's generally not allowed is because it, it lacks um, the characteristics of being able to be evaluated for credibility. Because Mary may believe she's telling the truth, but she's not the source of the statement. Susan is the source of the statement. So what we want is Susan on the witness stand. So the jury... The finder of fact, that's their job, determine the credibility of the evidence that's being presented to them. Um, if, if, the, if the statements are disconnected from the actual person who made the statement, they're just being repeated by somebody. Well, the person repeating it may believe it to be true. They may sound credible, but they're not the source of the statement. You want the source of the statement on the witness stand so the jury can evaluate their credibility. So that's hearsay. Hearsay evidence are out-of-court statements introduced in court for the purpose of the truth of the statement that's by default inadmissible evidence. But there are a ton of exceptions to the hearsay rule, uh, exceptions that allow the evidence in. One of them is statements against interest. If you make a statement against your own interest, uh, well, that's presumed to have the characteristics of credibility that hearsay normally lacks, because why would you make a statement against interest that was false? You're not going to say something that's harmful to you unless you believe it's true. Another exception uh, is a um, essentially a deathbed statement. So someone's been shot in the street. They're laying on the ground. They believe they're about to die, and they say Tom did it. Well, of course, that's an out-of-court statement, right? And if a witness were to repeat that statement in court, it's an out-of-court statement being introduced into evidence for the truth of the statement. Normally, that would be hearsay. But again, the core characteristic of hearsay is it lacks characteristics of credibility. The deathbed statement brings those characteristics back in because the, the legal system suggests that a human who believes he's about to die is not going to make false statements about who shot him. Uh, the fact that he believes he's about to die, <clears throat> he's mortally wounded, adds credibility back into what otherwise would be an inadmissible hearsay statement. And the same is true of an excited utterance. So an excited utterance is a statement made in the heat of the moment. And the idea is that a person who's making an excited utterance in the heat of the moment didn't have time to fabricate a lie. They're just emotionally responding reflexively to what they're saying. So you see a car crash and you go, holy cow, that blue car ran that red light. And a witness hears that. 
Well, maybe you can get the witness to be allowed to testify in court about the fact that you said that as an out-of-court statement. It's being introduced, an out-of-court statement being introduced in court for the truth of it, that the blue car ran the red light, um, but it was an excited utterance. So it, that the fact that it was an excited utterance adds in characteristics of credibility that would otherwise be lacking. So that's how that works. So the, 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 the legal doctrine of hearsay is really simple, folks. It's an, an out-of-court statement being introduced in court for the truth of the statement, inadmissible. Unless an exception is checked off. And the exceptions to hearsay get really complicated. So the legal principle of hearsay itself is simple. The exceptions are numerous and complex. And the exceptions, of course, is what allows, uh, what would otherwise be an inadmissible hearsay statement to become admissible. All right, folks. So let me get to the super chats now as we, uh, we hit the top of the hour, but I'll cover the supers as they've come in. Where are we? Yeah, I already did. <laughs> Rick Nakaida. Thank you very much. That was a $5 super chat. Eric Winberg. Uh, new set, he asks. Yes, new office, folks. Uh, thank you for that super chat, Eric. New office. Uh, we're still building it out. Still uh, getting the lighting and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the internet all straightened out. But I expect we'll make progress quickly. Kim Berger, $20 super chat. Wow. One for every $5 increment. Kim, thank you so much. Is there ever a time, she asks, someone breaks into your house and it wouldn't be self-defense to shoot? Uh, yeah, um, it could be. It's unlikely if someone's broken something to get in, but you might live, say, um, you might be a college student living in a home with a bunch of other students and the person breaking in lost their key, got drunk, just wants to come in and go to bed. So they're, they're breaking the screen, the locked screen door to get in. I mean, it's theoretically possible, um, but it's so unlikely uh, that in most states, the law creates a legal presumption that if you're dealing with a forcible, unlawful intruder into your home, that you had a reasonable perception of an eminent deadly force threat, which is really everything you need to justify your use of self-defense. So think about that legal presumption. It, someone's forcibly and unlawfully entering your home, a legal presumption is created that you have a reasonable perception of an imminent deadly force threat. Well, that gives you, of these elements, it gives you reasonableness. It gives you proportionality that it's a deadly force threat. It gives you imminence that it's happening right now. Sorry, this mirror thing is, uh, you don't have a, duty to uh, avoidance because you're in your home. So the castle doctrine covers that. So this legal presumption effectively gives you four of the five elements you would need to justify your use of deadly defensive force. The only element that's left is innocence. And let's face it, innocence is kind of baked into the cake if you're in your home and you're dealing with a forcible unlawful intruder. So it's hard to mess up defensive home scenarios, but people do. Um, for example, uh, they'll, I mean, say you, you encounter a forcible, unlawful intruder in your home, you take them a gunpoint, you get them on their stomach with their hands laced behind their head, and then you just shoot them in the back of the head. That's not going to be lawful self-defense because they were no longer an imminent deadly force threat. Or they, they're, they're halfway out the window fleeing your residence and you shoot them in the back. Or you chase them down the street and shoot them in the back. Um, I mean, I just saw a video clip yesterday uh, of an older gentleman. He had a, a couple broke into his house. Um, and he 
pursued him outside the house and shot and killed him and was glad he did it. And he's talking to the news media about how glad he did it. Apparently the, the woman of the, the, the burglary couple were, was pregnant. She was begging, don't shoot me, I'm pregnant. And he shot her anyway. He was proud to say to the media. Under circumstances where, by his own description, it certainly doesn't look to me like it was necessary that they were still an eminent deadly force threat. And we're not allowed to shoot people just because you think they might have earned it, folks. You have to meet those elements to justify the use of deadly defensive force. Uh, Switch 1947, $10 super chat. Thank you very much, Switch. Uh, writes Lubbock shooting, innocence, uh, interfering with visitation. I, I don't know what that has to do with the use of force argument. Proportionality responded to verbal with deadly. Uh, three went to get a gun. Well, I, so you're referring to the, um, uh, the, the shooting off the porch in Texas. Uh, I've covered it in detail. I, I think I did a whole show just on that. I've covered it repeatedly in increments. So I, I can't really step all th through all these points again here. It's just outside the context of today's show. Uh, Hernan Luna, $10 super chat. Thank you very much. Uh, what's your opinion on the fine line of pleading the fifth and talking to officers to elicit their discretion, letting you go on a traffic stop, a bar dispute without injuries, etc. cetera? Um, well, I, what's, my, what's my view? If you're going to be talking to the cops, just, just imagine that you're just making an outright confession to anything they want to charge you with. Now, if the worst you did was jaywalking, maybe you're willing to take that hit as a confession. Um, I don't know. Speeding? I mean, did somebody behind you end up getting in an accident because you were speeding? Is that why they're asking you? It's not just a routine traffic stop? I mean, why would you why would you make any statement that and 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 you never try to elicit anything from an officer to elicit their favor by making admissions about your own conduct. I mean, be polite, you know, traffic stop. I'm always polite. Sometimes it gets me a warning instead of a ticket, but that doesn't mean you're, you're conceding anything that you, you did that, that would not be. And it's not within your control, how the officers respond to your willingness to give up things harmful to you. <laughs> that doesn't mean they're going to do you any favors. Um, let's see. Switch 1947. Again, thank you very much. Another $5. Uh, I understand Kyle is related to DA. I understand Kyle is related to DA. I've served on grand jury twice. 99% DA asked for indictment. 99% we agreed. Once she asked for no bill, but we indicted. So I'm not sure what you mean by, I understand Kyle is related to the DA in terms of grand jury service. Uh, so for folks who don't know, grand jury is different than a trial jury. Uh, usually it's larger than a trial jury, larger than six or 12. And they don't hear just one case. They're presented with a whole bunch of cases and they're not determining guilt. They're determining whether or not there's probable cause for a case to go to trial. Um, and they generally are only presented with one side of the argument, the prosecution side of the argument. So if the prosecution wants to go to trial, well, then the prosecution only presents the evidence that's consistent with a narrative of guilt. And if you've only heard one side of an argument, it always sounds pretty compelling. So grand juries are pretty much a rubber stamp for a prosecution. Now, there are cases where a prosecutor might decide 
uh, you know what? We're going to show all the evidence to the grand jury and let them make the call, a legitimate call, a well-informed call with all the context. That happened in the Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson. Uh, that prosecutor, um, he, frankly, if it was up to him, he probably wouldn't have put it in front of a grand jury. But there are so many politics around Michael Brown's shooting, so many suggestions that it was an execution in the street by the police officer that he felt politically compelled to put it in front of a grand jury. But he shared all the evidence with them. And once the grand jury saw all the evidence, they refused to indict that officer in Michael Brown's shooting. Uh, but most of the time, the prosecution is just there to get the rubber stamp. They just show the evidence of guilt, consistent with guilt. They're not obliged to share the evidence inconsistent with guilt. Uh, having heard only the story consistent with guilt, the grand jury returns the indictment. That's just the way it goes. Now, do they have to do that? No, they don't. Um, could the grand could the prosecutor present uh, a version of the facts of the evidence more favorable to the defense and the grand jury could still indict? Yeah, it's their call. Do they believe there exists probable cause to believe that a crime has been committed, in which case they return the indictment and off the trial you go? Generally speaking, though, they're a rubber stamp for the prosecution. Uh, switch 1947 again. $2. Whoop. That was the wrong button. Um, sometimes the DA presents and asks what the grand jury recommends. Yeah, that can happen. Sure. Let you decide. Okay, let's see. I think I saw one or two more come in. So let me, whoops, let me refresh that screen. Uh, Fritz, a $50 super chat from Fritz, and he didn't even ask a question. I can't do that 50 times or I would. I will applause for Fritz. Thank you very much, Fritz. You are a champion. I really appreciate it. And Switch1947 asks, uh, it looks like he's responding to the question of whether there can ever be a, um, a forcible entry that wouldn't be self-defense if you shoot that person. And he suggests, what about a law enforcement firefighters, your neighbor looking for his 15-year-old daughter, uh, five-year-old kids maybe sneaking into the house? Uh, so when I mentioned that most states have a legal presumption that you were, you're presumed to have been reasonably perceiving an imminent deadly force threat, if you're dealing with a forcible, unlawful intruder in your home, there are carve-outs, exceptions to that legal presumption. A uh, very common one is law enforcement officers in the course of their duty may include firefighters in the course of their duty. Um, if it's a co-dweller of the building. Uh, so usually you have to qualify for that legal presumption and then you have to not trigger any of the exclusions. And there are typically four or five exclusions that the, the legislature built into those legal presumption statutes. By the way, most of the time, not always, but almost always, that legal presumption requires both an unlawful entry and a forcible entry, uh, that something was broken to get in because the legislatures are typically concerned about what they call the innocent intruder. So someone who's there unlawfully, they're not there by license, they're not allowed to be there, but innocently. And that could be a, a repairman sent to the wrong address, right? His boss says, hey, these people need their dishwasher fixed. They can't be home. They have an important thing to do, but they're going to leave the back door unlocked so you can get in and fix their dishwasher. And the repairman goes to the address and goes to the back door, and sure enough, it's unlocked, and he walks into the house to fix the dishwasher, but it's the wrong house. They gave him the wrong address. So he's in a home. He doesn't have license to be there. He does not have permission to be in that home, but he's there without malice. He's not there to do anything wrong. It's just a mistake. He's an innocent intruder. 
But while there can be innocent explanations for why someone's unlawfully in your home, there's unlikely to be innocent explanations for why they broke something to get in. So a forcible and unlawful entry usually clears up any ambiguity. Of course, there are exceptions, right? I mean, if the cops have a warrant to come into your house, they can kick the door in to come in. Now they're making a forcible entry, but it's not unlawful. They're lawfully privileged to make the entry because of the warrant. Of course, what if they get the wrong address? That happens too. Legally speaking, they're, they're, they're still going to be held to be within their, well, they won't be held criminally liable for kicking in the wrong door if they reasonably relied on the information that was provided to them. But does that mean the, the actual homeowner in that home, that's the wrong address, might he perceive his door getting kicked in as a home invasion and respond as if they were forcible, unlawful entrance to his home? Sure, that happens too. And by the way, if that homeowner reasonably perceived a home invasion, even if he's wrong, remember, self-defense does not require perfect decisions. It requires reasonable decisions. If that homeowner reasonably perceives an unlawful entry by those officers, doesn't realize they're police officers, for example, his use of deadly defensive force is legally justified. Can be legally justified. All right. I think that's it, folks. So another show I expected to be about 20 or 25 minutes long, and we are an hour and 15 minutes into the process, which is fine. I'm happy to do it. This is my mission in life. Um, as we begin to wrap up, I'll remind all of you again, please, if you're watching this on YouTube and you see that subscribe button, uh, pound it. If it's red, pound it until it's gray. Um, hit that like, thumbs up. Leave a comment. Even if it's only your city and state, leave a comment. That helps um, trigger the YouTube algorithm into sharing our content more broadly, suggest a higher level of engagement to the YouTube algorithm, and that's all to the better. Um, here's a late, a late entrant uh, super chat from Hernan, $5. Thank you very much. Asking about this legal presumption from a forcible and unlawful intruder asks, does the same apply when a house guest overstays or acts in a way that terminates the scope of their license? Well, if the legal presumption requires a forcible and unlawful entry, it requires they entered forcibly. So if they were a guest, they were invited in. There was no forcible entry. Now, and initially, of course, they were lawfully present. They were invited in. Uh, that could change, of course, if you no longer want them in your home and you order them out. Now they're no longer there by license. Now they're there unlawfully, but there still is an absence of a forcible entry. So if the legal presumption requires both forcible and entry and unlawful presence, and most of them do require both of those things, then that, that house guest who didn't forcibly enter in the first place hasn't triggered both those conditions. So the legal presumption is also not enforced. All right, folks, just remind everybody, you can get a free copy of our best-selling book, The Law of Self-Defense Principles. It's a real book, folks. It's not a PDF download grift thing. A physical book, we'll mail it to you. That's why there's a shipping and handling cost because we have to mail you the book. But the $25 cost of the book we eat, for, for, we eat, or you can go to Amazon and get the book and they'll charge you the 25 bucks plus shipping and handling. Up to you. But folks, if you're not willing to even get a free book and spend the maybe three hours it takes to read this book, to better understand the actual legal boundaries of self-defense, and then you end up facing 10, 20 years in prison, life in prison, because you weren't even willing to pay, what, eight bucks shipping and handling? 
and, and two or three hours, maybe four hours if you're a slow reader, no offense. Uh, I don't know what else to say. You got, you got to make some effort, folks. Uh, and you can get that at lawselfdefense.com slash free book. And with that, I will wrap up today's show just by reminding all of you, as usual, that if you carry a gun so you're hard to kill, uh, that's why I carry a gun, so I'm hard to kill, so my family is hard to kill, then you also owe it to yourself to make sure, owe it to yourself and to your family, to make sure you know the law of self-defense so you're also hard to convict. Don't forget our free webinars at hardtoconvict.com. Until next time, folks, I remain attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe. 